Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Father, we ask that as you teach us new things, you would also give us a new way of seeing to contain them. We ask that you would guide us and speak to us now through your word. That where we have questions, you would comfort us and give us answers. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Whenever you see people feasting with Jesus, you have two options. You can join them or you can question them. You can ask, why aren't you fasting? Just like if you see someone breaking a a vial of precious ointment and anointing Jesus with it, you can rejoice in the beauty of that gesture, or you can ask why that precious ointment wasn't sold and the proceeds used to benefit the poor. But I don't want to oversimplify and make it seem as if there's just an either-or, because in the questioning, in both of those examples, the motives are mixed. Some people clearly ask those questions from bad motives. The Pharisees in our text, as we've already seen, and Judas, certainly, in that later incident, are asking their questions because of a a twisted heart. And yet, here the disciples of John ask a question, and later the disciples of Jesus will join Judas in the puzzlement, and there the motives are different. There the motives aren't malevolent. There there's confusion that leads to this question. They are genuinely puzzled. When something new comes about, when something new is dawning, people are often puzzled by it. They often question this new thing that's happening. Some people question it because they're against it. But other people question it because they're trying to understand. They're trying to fit all the pieces together. They're trying to see how to fit this new thing in with the old thing, how they must go together. And that's what's happening here. The disciples of John are trying to reconcile this new thing that they're seeing with the old thing that they already have. The disciples of John are clearly holding on to the past. I say clearly because they are literally disciples of John. John himself pointed his disciples to Jesus. As we saw earlier in Matthew's gospel, John has already said he's the one. And yet here are some people who are continuing as followers of John, continuing to practice the things that John 
taught them. Now, they're not Pharisees. They're distinct from the Pharisees. But they do have something in common with the Pharisees. They are observing the many fasts which the Pharisees also observe because they have a shared understanding with the Pharisees, as different as they are. The disciples of John recognize, as the Pharisees do, that righteousness matters to God. And so they're attempting to do righteousness, and fasting is part of that. And they think this matters to Jesus too. If righteousness matters to God, then surely righteousness matters to Jesus, and that's why they're confused. Because Jesus isn't doing the things that people who care about righteousness do. He's not observing the fasts that they observe. He's not keeping the rules that they keep. And he's not teaching his disciples to do these things either. When people question God, the number one reason behind all the questions, the the thing that we're questioning is often his goodness. And it goes something like this. We take something that God has told us, And then we take something else that God has told us, and we say, these things don't go together. And so they say, justify yourself. Explain to me how this can be. Explain to me how God can command us to fast and then come in the flesh and not fast. It doesn't make any sense. I'm confused. Explain yourself to me. These objections to us often seem like obstacles that cannot be overcome, like great mysteries, puzzles that we just can't explain. And yet Jesus here says, no, this is easily understood. I can tell you exactly why this is happening. I can put my finger on exactly the explanation for the thing that you think is a mystery. Essentially, Jesus says to them, you've got the timing all wrong. You think it's time to fast, but it's not. It's actually time to feast. You're not wrong about the goodness of fasting. You're just wrong about what time it is. Now isn't the time to fast. It's the time to feast. As the book of Ecclesiastes says, for everything there is a season. Right? There's a time to weep, but there's also a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn, but there's also a time to dance. And the problem of these disciples is they just don't know what time it is. They don't know what's going on in God's plan. They think it's a time of mourning, a time of fasting, a time of waiting for something to come, for some good thing that has been promised to be delivered. But actually, that good thing has already been delivered. And now it is no longer time to mourn and to wait. It is time for joy. It is time for celebration. It is time to feast. And so Jesus gives them an analogy. It's like you've shown up at a wedding as if it were a funeral. Like you've come to the wedding and you're acting Like you should be fasting and depriving yourself, but it's a wedding. Nobody celebrates a wedding that way. When you come to the wedding, you feast. When the bridegroom comes, you celebrate. Like this is a time 
to rejoice, and that's why my disciples are doing it. Because of what time it is, because the bridegroom has come, there is no other way to be right now than to feast. Not only is it not wrong for them not to fast, but it is right for them to feast. The right thing to do now in the presence of the divine king is to feast. There is something more to that analogy, though. If you look at the way that that metaphor is used in the Old Testament, the idea of the the bridegroom and the bride, you know who compares himself to a bridegroom? God does. Over and over again in the Old Testament, he describes himself as the the bridegroom, the, the husband of his people Israel. And now Jesus, to explain why the people at his table are feasting, uses that exact same comparison, applying it to himself. Just as God in the Old Testament says, I am the husband, you are my wife. Jesus says the reason that my disciples feast instead of fasting is that I am the husband and you are the bride. He is asserting here his divinity in the subtlest of ways by using this analogy for himself, saying, using the words of the prophet Isaiah, I am Emmanuel, God with us. I have arrived. And if I'm here, it doesn't make sense to still be waiting for me. If I'm here, the time for fasting is over. It is time to feast. It is impossible not to feast if I'm here. We just released the latest episode of the commentary Friday. It was episode 70. We've been doing a lot of these things. If you go back all the way to the beginning, episode 5 is about fasting. It's called Fasting to Feast, and it talks about the way that fasting as a spiritual discipline is a kind of sacrifice that we make in anticipation of good things that are to come. Fasting is obedience. Fasting is good. For the Pharisees, the whole Old Covenant economy seemed to suggest to them that salvation was promised to those who were obedient. And so they cultivated a life of obedience, including fasting, so that they might in the future enjoy the salvation of God. They didn't just fast when it was absolutely required. Day of Atonement fasting. They did that, but they did much more than that. They fast often. They, they find all sorts of reasons to discipline themselves because that discipline produces righteousness, and it is righteousness that saves us. When John the Baptist came along, he called out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, and he lived a life in the wilderness of asceticism. Right? He did not live a life of comfort. He disciplined himself. His whole message was about the one who is to come. Not about now, but about the future, the one who is coming. And all of that self-discipline and all of that deprivation, in a sense, was a way of preparing for the one who was to come. And so John the Baptist's followers naturally embraced that same discipline If anything, they wanted to be more righteous than the Pharisees who John had called out. 
So you can see there was a common assumption that they all had. Righteousness is what saves, so we must discipline ourselves in order to please God and receive a future salvation. Why don't Jesus and his disciples fast? Is it because righteousness doesn't matter? No. It's because the future salvation is here. It's because the reason for waiting is over. It's because Jesus has come. It is time to stop waiting and start celebrating. There are a lot of joyless and self-righteous people who claim to be disciples of Jesus, but who are, in fact, more like disciples of John, who are still living as if salvation is uncertain, as if we will be saved or not based on our works, on our obedience, our good behavior, how well we do what God has called us to do. Like the disciples of John, these people have good intentions. They just don't realize what time it is. They just don't realize that the thing that they're looking forward to has already been accomplished in Christ. The problem sometimes is people like that in the church talk as if they know what time it is. They don't talk as if they're trusting in their own obedience. They talk as if they are trusting in God's grace. But they live as if they do not know what that word means. Oftentimes, when we think about grace, we imagine that grace is something, a little added ingredient, a little extra finishing touch on the plan of salvation that God just sort of adds on at the end to make everything work. Grace is sort of the thing that enables us to do what God commands us to do, and that's it. But grace is much, much more than that. In fact, what grace is is so great that nothing that went before is able to contain it. You can't keep the law. You know that, right? You can't keep the law. But I mean that in a different sense than it probably sounds. When you hear you can't keep the law, what you hear is I cannot obey the law. I cannot be perfectly righteous. Correct. But what I'm saying is more than that. Not only that you cannot fulfill the law, but you literally cannot hold on to it. You cannot keep it intact. Something has happened that has blown that whole thing apart. Now that grace has come, we can be honest about the law. We can't keep it. We can't hold on to it. We can't live according to the law. That's the point of the two analogies that Jesus makes about the, the, the new patch on the old garment and the new wine in the old wineskins. You can't put a new patch onto an old garment because it's just going to come off and it's going to make the whole even worse. The garment won't be more wearable. It'll be less wearable than it was. You can't just take new wine and pour it into the same old wineskin because it's going to burst that wineskin and your wineskin is going to be destroyed by it. Plus, everything you were trying to hold in the wineskin, that will be lost as well. In order to hold on to that wine, Jesus says, you've got to put new wine in new skins. And if you do that, then both 
the wine and the container will be preserved. So the only way to hold on to the new thing is to put it inside a new container. Grace is that wine. Grace is the wine that the old wineskin cannot contain. It cannot hold. If you try to pour grace into the old wineskin of the law, it's going to burst. And then your law-keeping will just be scraps. You won't even have an old wineskin anymore. Once you try to put grace into the economy of the law, the whole thing will be destroyed by it. And then your law-keeping will be nothing, and you will have lost grace too. You lose everything when you try to do it that way. In order to hold on to grace, you need something to put grace in, something new. The way that we live in the kingdom, in other words, is going to be different from the way that we lived before the king came. Because the way things were back then cannot contain him. If the grave couldn't hold him, look, neither could the law. Nothing in that old economy was enough to contain who Jesus is and what Jesus does. All that could do was point to him. But once he came, all of that passed away. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13.10, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. In Hebrews 8, the author of Hebrews says, if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. And speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. What is old will vanish away. Or, if you put some grace in it, it might just explode. Because it cannot contain grace. It cannot contain what is new. Now, in the new covenant, righteousness still matters. It matters more than ever. Jesus' righteousness fulfills the requirements of the law, and his sacrifice fulfills the requirements of the altar. That means, according to Paul in Romans 5, there is this overflowing abundance of grace that surpasses all of the boundaries and all of the banks flowing from the work of Christ. If in the face of that flood of grace, you try to maintain some kind of rule-keeping plan of salvation, if you think that you can just add a little bit of grace, sprinkle it in, you are mistaken. You'll be like the person who put that patch on the garment only to have it rip away, and your garment of legalism will be rags. You try to maintain mere obedience as the path of salvation. If you tell yourself all grace does is make it possible for us to be obedient, then grace will burst the wineskin of your theology and leave you holding nothing but wet, empty scraps. It cannot contain it. Grace is too wonderful and too joyous to be contained by anything that went before. You see this experientially when people begin to comprehend the reality of grace. Nobody gets it all at once. It happens in stages. You begin to suspect that things that you're reading in Scripture, things that you're being told, might be literally true. Maybe you've never thought about these things before, or maybe you've heard them. Maybe you even heard them in church, but there was always someone there to reassure you it doesn't mean what it sounds like it means. You just be an obedient, good person and do your best. That's what matters. 
But at a certain point, the Holy Spirit starts working in you and you start asking yourself, wait a second, what if this is actually true? What if it means exactly what it says? And there's something exciting about that question. It has the promise of changing everything, but there's also something threatening about that question because it has the promise of changing everything. Because once you start getting grace, you start seeing everything differently. You are on a journey now in which you have questions. Like the disciples of John, suddenly you find yourself going to God with all sorts of questions. Wait a second, if what you're saying is true, then, then how does this fit? If what I read here is correct, then how, how does what I read here work? I don't understand. Explain this to me, Lord. As you rethink everything, it feels as if grace is this thread that you're pulling on. And the more you pull on it, the more you think, like, if I just give it an extra hard tug, it'll come away and I'll have it. But all that happens is, as you keep pulling, the fabric of your old way of thinking just seems to unravel and unravel and unravel as if there will be no end. That's what grace is like when you try to weave it in with that old garment. You'll keep pulling and pulling and pulling. You'll be left with nothing. You tell yourself, maybe if I understand it, it will patch the hole in the way that I used to think. It'll be the supplemental fact that will make sense of everything. But no, the reality is it's going to keep tearing down everything that you believed before you understood grace as you feel that fullness of grace, as it dawns on you what grace actually means, like you can feel it. It's like a pressure in your chest. It's a good pressure, but it's possible to explode from joy, right? And that wouldn't be good. <laughs> so there's a fearfulness to it as well. Like, like, can I afford to believe all of this? Isn't there going to be a point where I have to just stop or I'll just explode? Well, you're not going to burst from joy as you discover grace if you have the right wineskin to put it in. That's why as people begin to understand grace, as they begin to see the implications of God's grace, we have to give them something to put it in. We have to give them a new understanding. You need a sense of God's covenant workings throughout Scripture, of redemptive history. You need to understand His kingdom. You need literally everything that He gives us in Scripture in order to contain the transforming power of the grace that He bestows upon us. You need it all, but that's a good need to have. You've got to rethink everything, but you want to. Because you don't want to be clothed in the old garment of self-righteousness. You want the new, seamless garment of grace. There's a place in our lives right now for both fasting and feasting. Both have a place. As you look at Jesus' words, he doesn't say, fasting used to be good, but now fasting is bad, so stop fasting and start feasting. And it's not an either or that he presents, it's a both and. This is the time to feast, he says, but there will be a time when it is right to fast. Right? This isn't that time, but that time will come. And that isn't what we want to hear. 
that isn't what we want to hear. What we want to hear is the time to feast is now, and it's time for a perpetual feast. We should never fast. The time for obedience, the time for discipline, all of that is over. All of that is fulfilled. But what Jesus says is more complicated than that. He says the reality of the kingdom has that already not yet character that we've encountered before, that we're living in a time right now where it is sometimes time to feast and it is sometimes time to fast. Today's feasting in the presence of the bridegroom is an anticipation of his glory, an anticipation of the not yet. When we come to the table and we feast, we are looking forward, which is interesting because it's fasting, it's discipline that we associate with longing. Feasting, we associate with fulfillment. And yet in this age, as we feast, we feast in anticipation of his return. We feast in the present age as if somehow the eschatological age has intruded in to the right now. But not always. Right now in this life, there's also a place for fasting too. When we feel Christ's absence, when we long to see grace overflowing all around us, and instead it seems that the the rule and reign of sin and death cannot be overcome. When we are burdened by those realities, it is time to fast and to long for him and to call out for his return. But that too points us forward to him. That too is a way that we are drawn towards Jesus. I said earlier that righteousness is a requirement. Like God does care about righteousness. The Pharisees aren't wrong about that. Righteousness does matter, but there's something else that matters as well. Like it wasn't enough for Jesus merely to be righteous. Sounds strange to say merely be righteous, but but Jesus could have been perfectly righteous and it still wouldn't have been enough. Something more than perfect righteousness was needed in order to accomplish human salvation. There needed to be righteousness to fulfill the law, but there needed to be sacrifice to fulfill the demands of the altar. The sacrifice was necessary as well. Jesus not only performs that life of perfect obedience, but sacrifices himself on our behalf so that that righteousness can be counted to us through the sacrifice. It may not be obvious to us, but sacrifices are associated with feasting. It's one of those hidden in plain sight things. Um, This will make sense if you uh, hear a phrase that Paul uses, meat offered to idols. There's a whole lot in the Pauline epistles about the status of meat offered to idols. Have you ever wondered why meat was offered to idols? Seems strange that people might go to Hy-Vee and grab some steaks and then bring them down to the altar and offer them to an idol. Why would you do that? Zeus is there on his throne. You're like, would you like this steak? No? All right, well, I offered it to an idol. No, obviously. Meat offered to idols is the sacrificial animal post-sacrifice. And it wasn't just false gods whose priests were sustained by the meats from the altar. The Levitical priests ate of this as well. 
When the Levitical priests offered sacrifices on the altar, the meat of those sacrifices was given to the priests in order to eat. If you were a priest in the old kingdom, the old economy of God, then literally your life depended on the table. You fed at the altar, so to speak, because the meat that was offered up was given to you and your family so that they might live. So that every sacrifice that was made, if you were a priest, was also a feast. There was also a feast that followed on the heels of the sacrifice. Jesus says in John 6, If you do not eat my flesh and drink my blood, then you cannot have life. There is no life in you. And people are astonished at at Jesus' words. What is he talking about? Is he talking about cannibalism? No, he's talking about sacrifice. And he's talking to people who know how sacrifice works. How is it that you would come to eat the flesh and drink the blood of Jesus? Well, if he is the lamb offered in sacrifice, then, then your life would be given to you at the altar, at the table of sacrifice. The feast that sustained you would be held at the altar of sacrifice. You would live on the sacrifice. And so do we. So do we. We are his royal priests. We are sustained by his sacrifice. If there is any life in us, it is because he has given himself for us and he has granted to us the power to recline with him at table and to feast with him and to feast on him and to have life in him. Which means that in this life, whether we fast or we feast, we live on the righteous sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We feast with authority because Jesus has made this the time when we can live through him. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast. 